You're listening to the Diary Discoveries podcast brought to you by Sally'sDiaries.com. Now here's your hosts, Sally Ivey and Jeff Richards. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, welcome back. We are now in part three of Shipwreck and the Legendary Passenger. And we've been getting a little feedback that some people are enjoying trying to figure out who the author is. Which actually kind of brought tears to my eyes because I just, I love knowing that they're trying to figure things out. And in fact, one of the texts that we got was uh, a few names that they threw out there trying to figure it out. So They weren't even close. No, which is, it's still so cool. So it's, I'm really well, enjoying it, it this. it took you back to when you were going through that same process yourself and you were trying to figure out who he was. And exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, it's quite the process, but I uh, hope you're enjoying yourselves. Well, why don't we recap the last bit of the last show? Yeah, so in the last episode, we found our passenger on the Ganges, and it was heading away from the shipwreck, the Oratava. And as if you remember, he had a wonderful description of how all the wet clothes were hanging over the sides and all over the deck. And because of the Ganges had its own passengers, and then the Oratava's passengers, there's quite a few people on board right now. And so I thought I'd start with um, the very last entry before we get to March 2nd. And this was the last entry of March 1st. Although compelled to leave her, we felt that we were parting with as good a ship as could float. And no passengers could have been better and looked after. So here we go on to a new day, March 2nd, 1897. We got into Aden early in the morning. The innate portion of the third-class passengers were put on board a coal barge and towed ashore, the women and children being on a tender. As they were leaving the ship, one of the men proposed three cheers for the captain of the Ganges, which were heartily given. They also gave cheers for the other officers and did not forget one for myself. There were quite a number of children amongst the third-class passengers, and it was very sad to see the discomforts and annoyance these people all had to put up with. A great many got none of their luggage. The cable boat Amber got into Aden about 12 o'clock with the remainder of the baggage, which was transferred to the Ballarat, and later on the Oratava mails were dropped on board that steamer, to which the first and second saloon passengers were transferred during the afternoon. We left Aden about midnight, the third-class passengers being left at Aden to wait for the West Orient boat. A good deal of their baggage have come on with us, however, but will no doubt be left for them at Colombo. On account of the large number of saloon passengers from the Oratava, the original passengers of the Ballarat have done likewise. I was fortunate, however, in getting a room to myself. The P&O agent at Aden arranged this and explained to me that I was the only passenger on the ship who had this. Ballarat sailed midnight. So this is such an interesting passage to me, you know, written in 1897. And then fast forward to 1912, 15 years later, with the wreck of the Titanic. Our author talks about the third class passengers being placed on coal barges without baggage. And so you can really tell how things were with the shipping industry with the first, second, and third class passengers. And he wrote that it it was sad to him to see their treatment and the uh, discomforts that they had to go through. Yeah, and the children. And then later on, they were, you know, let off in Aden without their luggage. 
So yeah, they really got treated differently. Yeah, so he took note of it. But then he also ends the day with the news that he was the only one to get his own cabin. (laughs) Everyone else has doubled up. Yep. But because of who he was, Mm -hmm. it was provided for him. It was provided for him by his uh, P&O agent, yes. And he also mentions the destination. So there's a new clue in this passage. Mm -hmm. Colombo. In Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka. And that is a huge clue, actually. All right, we're going to move on to the next few days, and so we'll begin here. So as with the beginning of the diary, these next passages from March 3rd to March 9th are rather short, so we're going to kind of summarize. He spends the next several days on board the ship with a lot of passengers. It's a crowded ship, and they have a lot of cricket matches and tugs of war. Cricket matches on a crowded ship. I'm trying to figure out how they did that. I don't know. One day, the passengers of the Ballarat played the passengers of the Oratava, and the Oratava passengers won that match. The next day, the ladies played the gentlemen, and the ladies won. So they're just kind of cruising around and having Great some weather. fun. Great weather. Yeah, the weather. weather was excellent. So on March 9th, they pull in that evening to Colombo. And he says he stayed at the G-O-H. And it took me a while because he uses a lot of abbreviations when he talks about eating dinner at a certain place or staying at a place. And I came to find out that that was the Grand Oriental Hotel. I did a lot of research on this diary, and you can do the same. So if you put in the Grand Oriental Hotel on the web you will come to several pictures that show just how magnificent this hotel is. Some of the pictures are what it looks like now, and some of them are from back in the time this diary was written. And it's really worth doing so, because that's just saying that our author's staying at some pretty expensive places. He also mentions Westwood again. They're uh, traveling together, and we found out that Westwood was a man that worked with him for many years. Mm-hmm. About 25 years. Yeah. And then on March 10th, there's another huge clue. He talks about being at the office. Yeah, so, he doesn't say Smith's office or the offices of a law firm. He goes, the office. So we know our author had an office on Sri Lanka. On March 11th, he boards a sleeping car and he goes from one end of the island to the other. So he goes from Colombo on a train to Dambatana. And Dambatana is a small tea village. And that's also worth looking up on the map. So here's his entry for March 12th. Arrived Hapatula at 10.20 a.m. Breakfasted at Rest House, the party consisting of Mr. Suffolk, Mr. Maitland, Westwood, and myself. Rode to Dambatana, where we arrived about one o'clock, having had a lot of rain on the way. Found the alterations to bungalow a very great improvement. The arrangements and furnishings of rooms being very satisfactory. Mrs. Duplock, who had been there for some weeks, was in charge of the domestic arrangements. The weather was a great change from the heat of Colombo, the evening being chilly enough for a fire in the drawing room. Between March 13th and 18th, they were doing a lot of work. He mentions going back and forth between Hapatule and Dambatana. They visit a table factory. He also mentions the entire staff of superintendents and assistants dining with him. So it sounds like he has quite the staff. He wrote all their names down. Mm-hmm. So then they ended up uh, leaving 
Hapatule and going back to Colombo, and he arrives there on the 18th. So we'll pick it up on March 19th. March 19th. Lord and Lady Breadalbane arrived from Tutacoran, India, in the SS Katoria at 8 a.m., went out to meet them, and brought them ashore, Mr. Buchanan and Westwood accompanying me, breakfasted at a GOH in a private room, drove in the afternoon with Lord and Lady Breadalbane and Mr. Buchanan to Medema Mills, where we found everything in first-class working order, dined at Mount Lavina Hotel with Lord and Lady B, Mr. Buchanan, and Dr. Murray. March 20th. Left Colombo by 7.30 train in special saloon car party consisting of Lord and Lady Breadalbane, Mr. Buchanan, Westwood, and Self. Had breakfast on the car, reached Candy at 11.13, and drove to the Queen's Hotel, where we have Tiffin, at which we were joined by Mr. Pierce, the general manager of the Ceylon Government Railway, and who had accompanied the train. Party visited the Royal Botanical Gardens in the afternoon, and were conducted over the gardens by Mr. Macmillan, the curator, a Scotsman, and to whom Lady Breadalbane and myself gave orders for plants to be sent home. Dined with party at the Queen's Hotel. March 21st, Lord Breadalbane, Mr. Buchanan, and self called on Araby Pasha in the morning. The party then left Candy by the 1040 train. We breakfasted on the car and proceeded on our journey without anything of note occurring until about 5.30 when a terrific thunderstorm broke and the rain came down in sheets. All along the line the mountain torrents came down with tremendous force and a grand sight they were. It reminded the Breadalbanes very forcibly of their own native hills and they both expressed themselves as being highly pleased at seeing the sight. There was, however, a certain element of danger in it as the terrific rush of water threatened to carry away the line, and the train had to proceed very cautiously for the remainder of the journey. We, however, reached Banda Raoela about seven, and there found Mr. Duplock to meet us. We at once proceeded to the Banda Raoela Hotel, where we were to spend the night. After dinner, we spent some time watching the lightning flashing around us, and retired early, having to catch the first train in the morning. So these last three passages leave a lot of clues for us, and one of the biggest was on the 19th when he went to Colombo to pick up Lord and Lady Breadalbane, and we found out quite a bit about them, and they are Scottish nobility. Yeah, they had a breakfast in a private room at the Grand Oriental Hotel. Mm-hmm. And then at one point, he talks about having Tiffin. And we found out that Tiffin was like a light tea that they took with a light meal. And that's usually in the late afternoon. And then the other thing I wanted to mention is the town of Candy. And that's spelled K-A-N-D-Y, not like C-A-N-D-Y, the candy that we all love. So and that's thought, a town yeah, that they headed to. Yeah, that's a town. To. I thought it'd be good to clear that up. Yeah, well, the train ride was significant because um, if you go on the internet and look up what this terrain looks like, it's very sloped, mountainous uh, as far as the the slope of the ground. So a train railway going through this with torrents of water running down, it would be a concern. It was it was raining hard enough that he mentions it, and they were concerned that the tracks could possibly be washed out, so the train had to proceed slowly, but they eventually did get there. Yeah. So on the morning of the 22nd, they board a train, 
and they reach Hapatule at 8.45 that morning. And he writes, there we found horses for the entire party and coolies to carry the luggage of which there was a big quantity. I'm trying to get that picture with a lord and a lady on the trip. There must have been considerable amount of luggage. Well, and they had been traveling since he said they came from India. They had been traveling for quite some time. So there was, I'm sure, a lot of luggage. So that means a lot of horses for the luggage and the travelers. Well, then they arrive at uh, Dambatana for a late breakfast. And they spent the rest of the day relaxing because of the journey and just resting up. And this place, Dambatana, is a very, very important place as far as our author's concerned. Yeah, it's a clue. It's a very big clue. And now we're on the morning of the 23rd. And the entire group, I thought this was so cool, they walk up to the top of a clearing, and it's known as Durant's Bungalow, I believe. And the five of them get their photograph taken. By plate, Mm -hmm. he mentions. Yeah. Yeah. So the, at the top of the mountain, I, I could only imagine, I wish I had that photograph right now. I would, would be cool to photograph. see that. Yes. Well, the weather is wet, he mentions, and they still manage to get the photo. So uh, Sally's going to read the last sentence of that day. He writes, Lord and Lady B expressed themselves as highly pleased with the arrangements made for their comfort. Lady B now. Lady B. He's quite comfortable with these folks, this Scottish nobility. March 24th, party consisting of Lord and Lady Brettlebane, Mr. Buchanan, Westwood, and Self left Dambatana at 8 a.m. for Le Maste Factory, Lady B walking and others riding and walking. Mr. Maitland accompanied us to Mondera Vendée Bungalow. Reached factory about 10.30 and found arrangements for our reception most unsatisfactory. The place being at a standstill and absolutely no work being done. This is a terrible disappointment to me, and the matter is one which must be closely investigated to see where the blame lies. Walked back to Mr. Fale's bungalow where we breakfasted. After breakfast, returned to Monera Vendée, bungalow on horseback. Lady B in a chair. Reaching there about 3 o'clock. Weather during this part of the journey very wet. Dined at Monera Vendée, and after dinner witnessed a display of fireworks and dance by natives. For the next eight days, there was some relaxation and sightseeing that he writes about. They uh, sent out some hunting parties. They played croquet. There were tennis matches. And this is where it gets really exciting for me, because when I read the diaries and then I start researching on the web, I start coming up with different books or different facts about possibly the area that he's been. And I actually came up with his story that somebody had written and they talked exactly about these eight days. And I want a quote from it. It says he prepared a typical tourist's fortnight for them. They watched the sacred elephants being bathed. They took off their boots outside the temple of tooth and saw the great jeweled bell in which the sacred relic is preserved. The yellow-robed librarian showed them the holy books, long, narrow strips of parchment held together by cords and bound in silver, giving them an inch-long section as a souvenir. In the evening before dinner, they strolled around the lake, which the last king of candy had constructed by the flooding of a paddy field. And when I read that and compared it to the notes in our author's diary, it almost sealed the deal for me as far as... That's when you pretty much knew. That's when I pretty much yeah, knew. Yeah, it had to be him. Yeah, and I think I got very excited and told you all about it. The passage was referring to the Brettlebanes. Yes. That our author had prepared this 
series of events for them. Yes. April 2nd. Weather fine in the morning. All busy packing. Ready for departure. Dr. Murray and Mr. Buchanan left Dambatana about four to walk to Hapudale. Encountered storm of thunder and lightning and rain. Dr. Murray and Buchanan, also their boy, struck by lightning. Dr. Murray's foot badly discolored, but otherwise the party not injured. Lord and Lady B started about 4.30 also for Haputale, accompanied part of the way by Self and Westwood, but had to take refuge in some coolie lines about one and a half miles from Dambatana, where we all remained till the storm abated, and after getting lanterns from Dambatana, Lord and Lady B, with the servants, proceeded to Haputale, while I returned with Westwood and Maitland, who had brought lanterns to Dambatana. Lord and Lady B reached Haputale at 8 o'clock, none the worse, and there joined Dr. Murray and Buchanan at dinner. Wasn't that something about three of those people in that group got struck by lightning? Um, how many people do you know that have been struck by lightning? That's really interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And looking at the geography and, and when you see the terrain, it's pretty open. And uh, lightning storms, you know, that, that was really dangerous. And, and quite the storm coming down because didn't they have to kind of... Yeah, they took refuge. They took refuge, yeah. yeah. And then they couldn't continue. He had to go back. And the Lord and the Lady kept going because they needed to get on the ship to mm-hmm. China. And they had to get lanterns too. Yeah. That was a great passage. I enjoyed it. Yeah, that was good. April 3rd, left Dambatana at 5.30 a.m., accompanied by Westwood and Maitland, and found remainder of party at the rest house left Haputale in special salon at 7.15 and reached Colombo at 6 p.m. That evening dined with Lord and Lady B and Westwood at GOH, which is Grand Oriental Hotel. April 4th, Lord B made some purchases during the day, and after tea at the GOH, Lord and Lady B left about 5 o'clock to join their ship, Coromandel, bound for China. Saw them into the launch at the jetty. The quarantine regulations not permitting of us going on board. They took Matley with them to act as his Lord's help servant during the remainder of their tour. Lord and Lady B both expressed themselves highly delighted with their visit to Ceylon and expressed their intention to repeat the visit perhaps next year. Dined at GOH. So we're now at April 5th. Uh, Lord and Lady Ruddlebane have left for China. And he's going back and forth from Colombo to his uh, factories and his bungalow. And so it's a lot of work and preparation for, for him to leave soon, which he'll board the SS Austral pretty soon to head out. And part of what he did was uh, at the factory was inspect a new packing machine. He mentions that. Big clue there. <laughs> amongst others. Yes, amongst that others. That we know. <laughs> yes. April 14th. Got luggage on board the Austral about 1 o'clock, had lunch at EOH, and immediately afterwards went on board the Austral, accompanied by Mr. and Mrs. Duplock, Mr. Buchanan, and Worship. Austral sailed about 4.30. So now he's on board on April 15th, and he's headed home. And we thought we would read the rest of the entries in his words, and they're fairly short and rather simple, but they're profound because these are the very last entries in this man's diary. April 15. Rain continued to fall most of the day. 
Nothing of importance occurred. Run for the day, 272. April 16. Weather considerably improved. Had fine afternoon and lovely evening. Passed steamer Oceana shortly before 4 o'clock. Have not felt quite as well as I should like today. Run for the day, 345. April 17th. Weather very fine. Nothing of importance happened during the day. Concert was held in the second-class saloon in the evening. One or two good singers, but concert only fair on the whole. Am still feeling rather unwell. Run for the day, 346. April 18th. Weather very fine. Service was held in the first-class saloon at 1045 a.m., conducted by Bishop of Bisbane, Bishop Weber. Children's services in the afternoon and steerage had a service in the evening. Afterwards, followed by singing of hymns, have again been unwell during the day and during the night. Run for the day, 356. April 19th, weather again very fine. Nothing of consequence occurred during the day. After dinner, a fancy dress ball took place on the saloon promenade deck, and a good number took part, and amongst the costumes were those of Britannia, Japanese ladies, flower girl, sweethearts, characters from operas and plays. Run for the day, 340. April 20th, weather still continues fine, the sun being very hot. Midday and about 6 o'clock past Aden, of which we had good view. In the evening, a concert was given in the third class and was rated a great success, most of the songs being well-received and many of them encored. Run for the day, 345. April 21st, weather very warm. We are now fairly in the Red Sea and have passed the neighborhood of the scene of the Orotava accident, though not in sight of land. Nothing of importance occurred today. After dinner, a lecture was given on the second saloon deck by a missionary, the subject being New Guinea, illustrated by lantern views. The lecture was largely attended and was a most interesting one. Run for the day, 349. April 22nd, weather breezy and rather heavy sea running, much colder. Most people changed their clothing for heavier stuff. Concert given in first saloon, which was very good indeed. Run for the day, 341. April 24th, reached Suez at 3 p.m., and after taking mails aboard, we left again at 4.30. Reached Ismailia about 11 p.m., where we took on board a number of passengers. Run for the day, 3.30. April 25th, weather fairly warm. Reached Port Said at 11.30 a.m. and went ashore to dispatch cablegrams. Returned to the ship to lunch. Went ashore again after lunch for an hour. Sailed at 3.30 p.m. April 26th, fair breeze blowing. Nothing particular happened. Run for the day, 2.79. Tuesday. April 27th. And that's where he stops. There are no entries after that for Tuesday, April 27th. That's interesting. Very interesting. He weren't home yet. He wasn't home and something must have happened. I don't know what, but that's that's where diary mysteries are needed to solve. Yeah, it's very intriguing. Some of you may have noticed that we skipped over April 23rd. And the reason we did that was because he mentions a newspaper that was published aboard the ship, which was a common thing. Very common. They still do it today. And he also wrote that in that paper was mention of himself. 
and I didn't want to say it because we'd like you to come back for episode four. Well, Sally, the diary is concluded. We did it. And I'm really happy that we chose this diary to share as our first one. It turns out that 1897 was a major year for this man. Yes, it's um, here. It's 1897 of the diary. And then we realized by further research that so much happens in this year for him. Sally's going to read a passage from a biography written about him. Mm-hmm. And this passage says, No one could have foreseen, least of all himself, when the New Year's chimes of 97 rang to him across the valley, that before he next heard those bells, he would be a public figure. So join us for part four. You'll learn his identity, and we'll tell you more about this man and his life. We'll see you again. Thanks for listening. For more information about Sally and her diaries, go to sallysdiaries.com. And if you'd like to drop us a line, you can do so at diarydiscoveries at gmail.com.